One of the points of this dream is to let Nebuchadnezzar to know who really is in charge. That it's not Nebuchadnezzar, but it's God. If only the people in Washington could understand that. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. The greatest change that will ever take place in any man or woman is that which comes from acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of one's life. For some, this decision comes because they may have grown up in a God-honoring household where the gospel message was shared daily. For others, it takes a crisis that brings us to a point where we call out and hope to the living God. For one king, the head of Babylon, it took a vision and the realization of that vision to turn this pagan man around. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he continues with the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar. And he will say that repeatedly because the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that read of this testimony, they don't know Daniel by his Jewish name. They know him by his pagan name. Whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Now, what took Nebuchadnezzar so long? Some commentators suggest that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the remarkable ability of this man to interpret dreams. That's just silly. That's not even bright. I don't know how someone could write that, but I found it in three commentaries. No, clearly that's not the case. He did not forget his ability. Look at verse 9. O Belshazzar chief of the magicians, don't miss the title, chief of the magicians. He had been promoted, and that's very important when you come to the sixth chapter. And it's very important, too, in understanding why the Magi were the way they were, because of the influence of this man. You'll miss a lot at Christmas if you don't understand the profound influence Daniel had. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Clearly, the king had not forgotten his ability. Numerous other suggestions have been made. I won't bore you with them. But the answer is found just in a careful reading of verse 8. It does not say, at last, Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel. But verse 8 reads, finally, Daniel came in before me. I have no doubt that Daniel intentionally stayed away because I think Daniel knew that the king needed to see one more time the fallacy of his own wise men, the deficiency in their lives, and he wanted to highlight the greatness of his own God. And no doubt, this is a man who loved God. We've seen that already through the book, and we'll see it in the next few chapters all the way through the book. He loved the living God. And when God is in your heart and on your in your life, it will come out on your lips. No doubt he witnessed to this king. He was a prophet of God. And all the prophets of God, the Bible says, preached of Messiah, which puts this context and this conversion a little bit of historical context. Here is a man who probably time and time again, we will see Daniel every single day, prayed three times a day. I'm sure on numerous occasions he said, oh God, I know it would be a miracle 
but you have put me in this position of leadership under this despot who is a wicked man, who cares less for people, who is so unmerciful. Oh, Lord, please get a hold of this man's life and convert him. And God is going to do that. And when Daniel comes into the throne room, you can almost feel the sense of relief in the verse. I hope you picked up on the manner in which Nebuchadnezzar described Daniel and the Lord whom he served. It describes his... His description tells me a couple of things about King Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, he's polytheistic. Notice, um, in fact, if you draw back to chapter 2 and verse 47, he makes a statement there. And there he says, surely your God is a God of gods. Then at the end of chapter 3, he makes a statement, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. What does that tell you? It still tells us he's polytheistic. He doesn't believe in one God, but multiple gods. I was in India a few weeks ago, and we went into this pagan temple, Sham and myself, and we prayed for the priest and the man who was lost, and we talked to him about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I, I, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He was just another God in the Parthenon of gods. No, when a Hindu is genuinely converted, like anyone else out of polytheism, he renounces all gods and worships the one true living God who's revealed himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so here's a man who, one, acknowledges there's many gods, and two, by that, he's not affirming what his heart knows to be true, that there is only one God. Even the reprobate of Romans 1 who turns from the Creator and worships the creation, Paul affirms he still recognizes in his heart of hearts that there's one true God. So when Daniel comes into his presence on this occasion, as stated here in verse 8, then again in verse 9, and then again in verse 18, each time the king says to Daniel that a spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is just lip service. He's not saved yet. He's still polytheistic. Nonetheless, God is at work in this man's life. Look, he's a pagan. So what is he using? Pagan terminology to basically say, your God is evident in your life. In New Testament terminology, we would say, oh, Daniel is filled with the Spirit of God. You know, and that's the way it ought to be with God's people. We shouldn't have to wear a sign around our neck saying, I'm a born-again Christian. They ought to be able to see a difference in our life. They ought to be able to see the Spirit of God working in us. And if God's Spirit is working in us, people will know it. You know, I've discovered over the years that very often people who have criticized me, who have been angry with me, who have mocked me, who have made fun of me, when they are in crisis, they come to me because they know that I am in touch with the living God. The Lord should know that of everyone in here who names the name of Christ. Every unbeliever ought to see that you are in touch with the living God and that you have something to speak on His behalf. And let me tell you this morning, God does not fill a dirty life. And your most valuable stewardship is not your time or your money, it is your heart. And God says to watch over your heart with all diligence. And we live in a day of moral filth. 
And many of God's people have opened the door to moral filth in their hearts, and they wonder why God is not pulsating through them. It's very simple. He does not feel a dirty object. So here's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's flourishing, but now he's floundering when he has this dream. He was at rest. He was at ease. Now he's restless. He's fearful. Look at verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, literally the Hebrew reads, looking I was looking, which emphasizes that Nebuchadnezzar is engrossed with what he is looking at. He's looking very, very carefully. He's assuring Daniel that he took very careful note of what he saw. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree. If you know your Bible, very often in Scripture, God will use a tree to describe a person, both believers and unbelievers. I saw this tree in the midst, in the middle of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. This is a magnificent tree in his dream. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And it was food, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. By the way, we live in a culture that is enamored with angels. The last time I was in Barnes and Nobles, there was a huge shelf with books on nothing but angels. They're always described as little winged, innocent-looking creatures, and they're credited with all kinds of things, from finding lost jewelry to healing people of incurable diseases uh, to saving people from fatal accidents. And of course, the Bible does affirm that angels are sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation, to those who know the living God. But unfortunately, the popular theology on angels, for the most part, is quite inaccurate and really incomplete. And when you read of angels in the Bible, while they are sent to render service to those who are saved, their principal role in the Scripture is to mete out the judgment of God. We will see that in Daniel, the 10th chapter, and we will see it all the way through the Revelation. And so beginning here in verse 14, we see God using an angel to minister God's judgment. Notice how the verse begins. He shouted out, literally, he cried in strength, which indicates that what he's about to say is very, very important, and he wants the king to hear it. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree. Cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And notice what he says, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground. Now the word for stump is a specialized word in the Hebrew text. It's the word ikar. And it describes not a dead stump, but a living stump. A stump that is not dead, and that's important because God in this vision is going to use this stump that is still alive to picture Nebuchadnezzar to show him that he is going to be restored. But then the angel adds here in the middle of verse 15, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. Now the band represents, as you know, the vision, the insanity of the king. 
He, he, he is bound. He is gripped with this terrible madness. It holds him. It, the same word is used in Ezra 7 of chains, of bonds, of imprisonment, depending on your English translation. He's describing the chains, the bond, bonds by which this man was bound mentally. Notice carefully in the middle of verse 15 the change in pronouns. I have them circled. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. A tree isn't a hymn that signals me that this tree, this stump in some manner represents a person, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And so the idiom of the tree gets very personal in verse 16. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Seven periods of time. Those of you who are prophecy students know the significance of this little word, time. And if you've studied prophecy, you know that it refers to a year. Daniel will use it again in Daniel 7.25, where he speaks of a time, times, and half of a time in describing half of the tribulation. How long is the great tribulation? Seven years. How long is half of it? Three and a half years. Both the prophet Daniel and the book of Revelation, and we'll detail that when we come to the seventh chapter, describe this phrase, time, times, and half a time, to describe a very important half of the tribulation and what happens right in the middle of the great tribulation period that's very important. Now, in, um, in English, we have uh, singular and plural. But in Hebrew, like other languages, in Aramaic, and this is the Aramaic portion of Daniel, there's singular, there's plural, and there's dual. So in Daniel 7.25, when he speaks of a time, that's a singular. When he speaks of times, that's a dual. That refers to two. And then half a time, that's a half a one or three and a half years. Now, we don't really have a dual in English, and we rarely try to even express that form. If I said to you... Uh, Last night, I had all my friends over for dinner, both of them. Um, all my friends would be a plural. Both of them would be a dual. Um, years ago, we were reading the picture Bible. Uh, people ask me very often, what's the best children's Bible? I still tell them the David C. Cook publication on the picture Bible. It's the best kids Bible out there. I own about 20 children's Bible, and yes, I've read the latest ones, and they're not as good as this one that was done many, many years ago. And my kids in the picture Bible, they said, well, Dad, there's two angels here at the flaming sword of fire there at the entrance to the garden after God told Adam and Eve they could not come back in. But in this Bible, there's one angel, and in this Bible, there's three angels. Which is it? Well, they were very precise, those who pictured it in the David C. Cook Bible. There's two angels because it's a duel in Hebrew. So when he speaks here of seven times, he is speaking, as we will see, of seven years. Just hold that in your mind, but that's important. Now, in English, again, we don't have a duel. You know, it speaks of cherubim. There's no such thing as cherubims. Uh, it's a duel. They can express it in the form, just like there's no such thing as deers. There's the word deer, right? This is a, a seven periods of time. It's a singular seven years. That becomes very important. Hold on to that fact. Verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. 
So the decree, the decision by these angelic watchers, these holy angels, of course is not made independently of God. Now contrary to the popular theology pictured on the television, where angels serve at their own will and do their own thing, that's not true of God's holy angels. The decree, the decision, is not made independently of God. In fact, if you drop down uh, to verse 24, that same decree is not called the decree of the angelic watchers, but the decree of the Most High. So this is a sovereign God, and it's these angels that are simply carrying out His, His commands. This decree is given by God, notice, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliness, the lowliest of men. One of the points of this dream is to let Nebuchadnezzar to know who really is in charge, that it's not Nebuchadnezzar, but it's God. If only the people in Washington could understand that. This, verse 18, this is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men which, by the way, would have been a dark cloud on their resume forever. But when he tells his testimony, he wants to underscore that. Because if you remember from the early chapters, these men are into the occults. And he no longer wants to affirm that. None of these wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So having described the dread, the fear of the dream, now he gives the delineation of the dream. Beginning in verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, again, those readers would not have known his Jewish name, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. So there was a period of time when Daniel says nothing. Not a word is said during this period of time. The King James says one hour. The New American Standard here says for a while. The Arabic root means either one hour or a short period of time. Either is correct. He is so overwhelmed, and, and the king doesn't initially interrupt him. He lets him go on in this silence. Why? Because he has tremendous respect for this man. You know, sometimes you read a portion of Scripture and you're just overwhelmed. There have been a few times in the pulpit, I, I just couldn't speak. I was just so overwhelmed with the text. And imagine today if I were reading the text of Scripture and I was silent for a whole hour. That would prolong the message. But at the end of this hour, the king breaks the silence. Notice again verse 19. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel is basically saying, I've got some bad news to tell you, king. And Daniel was experiencing what every true preacher and pastor of the word of God experiences. There are times with great joy I can give you a happy message. I love to preach on the joys and the realities of heaven. But sometimes I have to preach about the realities of hell. Sometimes I am called to confront people as I confront myself with sin, reprove, rebuke, exhort, Paul says, with great patience and instruction. And sometimes the message just weighs your heart down. I understand what the prophets said when they said the burden of the word of the Lord. And it's unfortunate that so many pastors today want to water down God's truth because they don't want to turn anyone off. And millions of people will go to church today 
and never be confronted with sin. Many times because they are sitting before an unbelieving pastor or just a false prophet like a Joel Olstein who says you shouldn't talk about sin. You cannot water down the message. There are pastors today who would fill hell with lakes and flowers and misrepresent what God says, and they are doing the people they minister to a great injustice because they are giving them a false sense of peace. On the other hand, there are pastors who will speak of the judgment of God, but in a hateful way. Dr. Pentecost, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, often would say, whenever you preach on hell, preach it with a tear in your eye. And I believe that. And that's how Daniel does it. His heart is broken. Oh, king, how I wish this dream did not refer to you. I wish it referred to your enemies. But he knows where Nebuchadnezzar is headed. And so with a great sense of integrity, he tells him in truth. He doesn't doesn't hide it. He doesn't take pleasure in giving the stern word of God. God himself, the Bible says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet he tells them the truth. Verse 20, he begins to delineate the meaning of the dream. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the sky dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. And now comes the punchline in verse 22. It is you, O king. Just like Nathan the prophet confronting King David, you are the man, David. Even so, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. He restates the dream almost word for word, showing Nebuchadnezzar that he knows the dream and therefore his interpretation is once again totally reliable. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. And notice the six descriptions of judgment that follow as he details it to the King of Babylon. First in verse 25, that you will be driven away from mankind. Nebuchadnezzar would experience broken fellowship from his fellow man. He'd be in the wilderness away from people. Second, we're told, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. That had to be a shock to him. Not only would he not be with his fellow man, he'd be with the beasts of the field. Third, we're told, and you be given grass to eat like the cattle. That's a true vegetarian diet to the hill. Fourth, you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. You'll wake up morning after morning covered in dew, which means you're going to live out without any shelter. Fifth, And seven periods of time will pass over you. We've already noted that refers to seven years until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now, God gets a little more personal in the restatement of the dream. Back in verse 17, if you will look there, when he said that this judgment of the king would be in order that the living 
may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And indeed, they would know that. Remember, this affidavit, this spiritual tract is going to be published through the whole world, and everyone would know it. But now he, he takes it from the living, here in verse 5, to you. God says that you, meaning you, Nebuchadnezzar, that you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Oh, that many politicians could understand that today. Then 6, and finally in verse 26, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Again, the significance of the stomp is that God has not done with him yet. And so that's the interpretation. Again, it takes a lot of integrity to tell him the truth, but he's not afraid to do that. That's what makes him such a great godly man. Verse 27, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. In New Testament terminology, he's telling him to repent and believe because that's the only possible way for you to be able to break away from your sins. And then he tells him, if that's true, you'll show the evidences of it, the fruit of it. He was to manifest that he had genuine faith in the Lord. How? By doing righteousness... And then by breaking off, the verb is shared in Hebrew, from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Now, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, he was a fantastic builder. And very often, these great kings, these despots, would show very little consideration for those who worked for them. Hundreds, thousands would die laboring for their kings under the extreme heat and the weight of the task. In history records in Babylonian cuneiform that Nebuchadnezzar was no different. He prided himself on his great accomplishments and he totally ignored the people who worked for him. He was not interested in alleviating the pain of the poor. He used them. And so Daniel then adds, in case, do all this, break away from all this, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Maybe he has a text like 2 Kings 20 in mind, where Hezekiah was told that God was going to extinguish his life, and then he sought the Lord, and God extended his life 15 years. Maybe he thought, well, if Nebuchadnezzar would just repent now, God would change his mind to use an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech found throughout the Hebrew Old Testament where God uses a human attribute to describe the living God. God is omniscient. It's not like, ooh, I think I'll change my mind. I didn't know I was going to change my mind. When the Bible talks about God repenting or changing his mind, he's using a human attribute so that we can understand God's decision-making process. But unfortunately, King Nebuchadnezzar does not heed the advice. It took a disaster for King Nebuchadnezzar to truly embrace the one true God. What will it take to turn the heart of a modern-day non-believer to Christ? God is not as extreme with everybody as he was with Nebuchadnezzar, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them any less. If you'd like a booklet and message that shares the gospel, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? This is a great tool to help you share your faith, or if you've never trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, it will reveal several spiritual truths to you to help you make a more informed decision. 
Just call 877-787-7478. And to listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org and look up message number DAN5. Tomorrow we come to the conclusion of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony and how it applies to the life of modern-day man. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.